Let's get this started. Uh, the book of Job is the second of the three books in this whole series that I've never taught. Last week was the first, right? Book of Proverbs. I never taught a, meaning I've taught a lecture on Job, but I've never taught a course in Job. The reasons for each one is different. Last week we talked about my issue with Proverbs that I haven't thought of a good way to teach a course. Can't think of a good way to teach it. Why burden your students? One lecture, I thought it was just fine last week. I'm very satisfied. But, but, but the idea of teaching a full-blown text course, I haven't thought of a good way to do it. Job, I just don't know what the words mean. So I feel that to teach a text course where you don't know what you're talking about is typically a bad idea. Obviously, there's a lot of good scholarship on the book, and that I was able to read, and I understand some of the words here and there. So I was able to piece together a shiur. I actually had to give this shiur on a very, very sad occasion, the very first time I created it. It's much, the shiur is much better, and I'm also much less sad, but there was a girl, you remember her well. Uh, she was eight years old at the time who died of a brain tumor. I knew her very, very well. I was very close with her family. And she, uh, I had to speak at the Shiva, which was, you know, talk about like an awful, awful, awful thing in every imaginable regard. And, you know, bless, bless the family. It's, it, was, it was a dreadful shiur. To, it was a dreadful shiur to have to give. And so I figured it would be fitting to talk about the book of Job. Because what better, let, let me just, let me just go for, let me just go. Yeah, I understand. Under, understood. But, but let me go. So the book of Job was the right thing to talk about, and so I did. And, and it was a wrenching shiur to prepare, and from a preparations point of view even, just, okay, I normally would never prepare a shiur so under the gun, but here obviously there was a very urgent occasion and there was a specific time frame for it. Since then, obviously, it, it you know, because it's a real life situation, that obviously has shaped my whole perception of the book, and every time I talk about it, even though this is... 1999 that this girl passed away. It's a very long time. It doesn't take away the pain and the, and the rawness that one feels whenever anybody deals with one of these really awful, worst of the worst type of tragedies. We've already spoken about the broader issue, obviously not this child, but just the broader issue that the Torah solves and addresses every imaginable religious issue you could think of and some. It's really great, but it made this one problem. And it's an unsolvable problem. The problem is that if God is all the omnis, God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-fair, makes promises that he's involved in our lives, promises fairness, good things for good people, bad things for bad people. These are basic premises of the Torah. Then, if there is one exception ever, we got a problem, because to be God, you have to bat 1,000. You can't get it right most of the time. Right? So, from time immemorial, we've had this issue of, well, wait a minute, sometimes there are things that are palpably unfair. Sure, God must have some higher wisdom out there somewhere. We're willing to trust that, perhaps, but it doesn't take away the reality. So in the biblical period, the courageous book that took this on outright was the book of Job, where it created the fictional perfect man. And the only way that you can get that is if you start the book by having God himself speaking about this man is perfect. Because if we don't have the God scene... And once upon a time, there was a righteous man who suffered, and his friend said, whoa, you probably sinned. We would have no choice as readers but to nod along with the friends and say, look, it may not seem fair, but nobody is perfect, and therefore it could well be that you have sinned. So you need the God scene at the very beginning of the book saying, God himself is saying, this man is perfect, he's flawless, and that makes this a good book. All of a sudden, the whole point of the premise of the book is that you can have a perfect man, even if it's a hypothetical one, who could suffer the worst imaginable things. His ten children die. He loses all of his wealth. He has physical ailments. 
This guy is having a very bad day. Right? Now, even if all of these things are larger than life, hopefully, uh, we can all either experience or see or read about things that are thoroughly unfair. The Talmud actually one-upped the Bible on this one. It wasn't satisfied with the hypothetical perfect man. It decided to deal with the child who dies. Because in real life, you could say, this child cannot possibly be held accountable for sins. It's a child. And then they one-upped that by saying, oh, how about this one? The Torah promises long life for two things. One for honoring your parents, and the other one is if you want eggs, you need to shoo the mommy bird away from the nest and then get the eggs. Okay, so it's very easy to come up with the scenario, whether or not it ever happened. Once upon a time, a father asked his son to fetch some eggs. Very honorably, the child runs off to honor his father, climbs up the tree, shoes away the mommy bird, falls down, breaks his neck, dies. Okay, that's as perfect as it goes. Here you have overt divine promises. It's a child. You can't say the child committed some other atrocious sins. He's doing exactly the things for which the Torah promises long life. And he's dead. So you can't say, oh, even if he's suffering, be patient. He'll do better next time. His fortunes will be returned. He's dead. It's over. That's the Talmudic Job. (laughs) They came up with a child, so that way it clears reality. So that's just a fact. And our sages have a rough time wrestling with this book, understandably, although honestly, bless this book for being written, because I don't know where we'd be without it. It's such an obvious problem that the Torah created, if we just swept it under the rug and pretended as though it did not exist, if we only had the book of Proverbs that we discussed last week, I think that would make religion hard for a lot of people, certainly once they become adults and once they encounter some gravely unfair matter. So the Talmud kicks off, this is just the best way to say it actually, in Source 1 with an authorship statement which seems benign, but it says a lot in my opinion. Who wrote the scriptures? Moses wrote his own book, what you and I call the Torah, and the portion of Bil'am, so cool that that's considered something separate, very interesting, but it's not tonight's topic, so we'll talk about it some other day, uh, and the book of Job. It's very, why did Moses have to write the book of Job? Why, it could be anybody. You don't know when it was written, who wrote it, the book doesn't say a thing about it, you don't know the time frame for which it was written, but this statement says a lot. Because the fact that anybody thinks that Moshe could have written the book of Job means a person who was the greatest prophet in the history of the world, who had God himself explaining him as much as anybody in human history ever knew, if Moshe doesn't know why bad things happen to good people, well then, (laughs) good luck for the rest of us. It actually is a very telling statement of the Talmud, that if you have the greatest of the prophets writing this book, that's a way of saying this is way beyond any human being's comprehension, even one who was talking directly with God all the time let alone for those of us who don't. Okay, so this statement, I think, says a lot. And then you have statement two, which kicks off a very interesting discussion. Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi bar Lachma said that Job was a contemporary with Moses. That's one opinion. Rava said Job was in the time of the spies, which last time I checked is also a contemporary with Moses. Same story. Okay, good. A certain rabbi was sitting before Rabbi Shmuel bar Nachmeni, and in the course of his expositions remarked, Job never was and never existed, but is only a typical figure, meaning at least one sage thought this is fiction, already in the Talmudic period, that it was not written as an account of a historical figure, Job, and this never happened. It's here to teach about the problem of when bad things happen to good people. Okay. 
Rabbi Yochanan Bar and Rabbi Elazar both stated that Job was among those who returned from the Babylonian exile. Okay, that's way, that's many centuries after Moshe, at the end of the biblical period. Rabbi Eliezer said that Job was in the days of judging of the judges. That's a middle zone, right? Rabbi Yosho ben Korcha says Job was in the time of Achashverosh, also the end, end, end of the biblical period. Sages said that he was in the time of the Chaldeans, also the Babylonian Empire. Some say that Job lived in the time of Jacob. In other words, if you just survey everything, we have votes going from the patriarchal period through Moses, through the judges, to the end of the Bible, or that it didn't happen at all. So here's how two very great thinkers reckoned with this Talmudic passage. Rambam shows up in the Guide to the Perplexed and says he likes the view that this never happened. He likes the view that this is a philosophical treatise in in narrative form. That the point is, people suffer, and there's a lot of unfairness in the world, and somebody had to write a biblical book so we could deal with that. And the fact that the sages have no clue when he lived, I mean, boy, oh boy, talk about big range. They're just shooting in the dark. He says that demonstrates that they have no tradition at all, and it should show that the story never occurred. Because if it occurred, somebody should remember the century or the millennium in which it occurred, instead of having nary a clue. So that's Rambam's way of reckoning with this Talmudic passage. Then you have Rav Soloveitchik, Rav Joseph Soloveitchik, in one of the many books he's published since he passed away. This one is called Out of the Whirlwind. It's, you know, there are all these students that are publishing notebooks of his, editing works of his, all this unpublished stuff. It is great. It's, I'm so happy that people are publishing it. So this one's called Out of the Whirlwind. And Rav Soloveitchik said, actually, all these opinions are right. Job did live in the time of Jacob, and he did live in the time of Moses, and he did live in the time of the judges, and he lived in the time of the Babylonians, and he lived in the time of Achashverosh, and he lived during the Crusades, and he lived during the Inquisition, and he lived during the Holocaust. The point is, every generation has its Jobs. And they're not debating a historical question of when this story took place. They're saying this story could happen in any generation, and it always will. So those are two different great thinkers dealing with the same passage, one to demonstrate that it's fiction and the other one to say it's a typology. It ends up being the same point, which is the book of Job needed to be written. Now, there's a snazzy word that the philosophers like theodicy, which is, you know, theodicy is to justify God's ways. And that's what Job's friends represent in this book. They're not really good friends. But the, the three guys who show up and visit him, and try to, they don't really try to comfort him. They just say, no offense, but it's, you obviously sinned, because that's, that's why people suffer. God is always fair, you're suffering, you therefore must deserve it. That's their point of view. It's called the theodicy, they're justifying God. I will tell you from personal experience, I have a sister, very, very, very smart in many, many ways. We used to play a game called Boggle. You, know, you shake up letter cubes, and so there was a time where I could beat her almost every single time. Those days are very long gone. She can, I don't think I'll ever beat her again. But, but back in the day, when I was about in college, and she was either also in college or at the end of high school, the general principle was we'd play, and I would almost invariably win, with the exception of occasional games where it was like two to one. But the high-stakes games, I always won. So so one time, though, she did have more points than I did in a high-stakes game. But I had theodicy. And I was pretty sure it was a word, and I was pretty sure that I was spelling it correctly. And that's eight letters. In regular Boggle, that is 11 points, if I recall. That would that way put me over the top. So she, of course, thought I was being a sore sport. Because, you know, what, what's theodicy? She never heard of it. I'm like getting desperate over here. I'm like, no, I really think it's a word. Why don't we just look it up? And if it's not a word, you win the game. It's, it's really that simple. And sure enough, there it was on page whatever in the dictionary. Theodicy is a word. 
And I had it right, and I had it spelled right. I got the 11 points, and I won, which proves that good things happen to good people. <laughs> so, so I actually like the word. I have a personal hakarat hatov for, for that. It was, it was really fantastic. I really love it. And, and again, I don't think I'll ever be able to beat her again. But back then, that was a very helpful word. So that's what the friends represent in this story. And what we have to deal with is why this happens. Now, for the record, the Bible, I'm just going to tell you from the outset, we don't know. We have no idea why, why bad things happen to good people. And you could write all the books you want about it trying to explain it. And you can't do it. But I will say that, biblically speaking, the best explanation of why the world must be unfair appears in our book. And it's not in Job's mouth, and it's not in the friend's mouth. It's not even in God's mouth. There's this foil character up in the heavenly court called the Satan who is the prosecuting angel. He, you know, In Christian literature, he becomes Satan, like some demonic, devil-like figure who actually has independent will and is evil. But the biblical Satan is, is simply the, the prosecution lawyer. And his job is to make, you know, to say, oh, you think so-and-so is so good? I don't think so. And then God's job is to shut him up. So in this case, the story opens up in chapter 1 with God saying, oh man, I really got it right with Job. He's so wonderful. He's awesome. He's perfect. Look what he does. He's so righteous. And the Satan is like, he's not righteous. He's prudent. After all, look at a good life he has. He's wealthy. He has a wonderful family. Everything is going his way. Of course he's righteous. He's not really righteous. He's just prudent. But if you would make him suffer, you'd see he wouldn't be righteous anymore. And so a $5 bill gets passed under the table. They make a bet. And God says, no, I think, I think he really is righteous. Let's bet on this. And Satan, you go harm him any way you like. And then Satan inflicts terrible, terrible, again, all these horrible things happen. He loses his wealth. He gets his children die. Next, next stage, he gets a physical affliction. And now he's suffering. And uh, we'll see his reaction in just a moment. What Satan actually does in that scene is explains why the world cannot be fair. He's not doing it to justify anything. In narrative form, he explains the great biblical answer to why God had to make an unfair world. Even though God promises that the world will be fair. If the world always were fair and righteous people really always got rewarded and and wicked people always got clobbered, we'd all be righteous. We wouldn't even think about it. Because what would you rather do? Have a happy family life or get hit in the head with an anvil? So if, if everybody knew that the second they sin in any regard, something would fall on their head, nobody would ever sin. But that's not really righteousness anymore. That's exactly what the Satan is saying. The Satan is saying, as long as good things happen to good people, nobody's really righteous. So the world has to be unfair. If God wants free will, the price for having free will is the world must be unfair, at least sometimes. Now, by the way, what that means is the world is unfair. And that's that's the problem that the book is trying to address. It doesn't solve the problem. But the Satan, at least, gives an excellent explanation. He's not doing it to explain anything. He's doing it to show why Job isn't really righteous. But it works. Later Jewish thinkers don't miss this, and many, many, many of them say that's why the world is unfair sometimes. It doesn't explain the real why, because, wait a minute, now the world is unfair. What's going on here? So our book is not trying to answer the question of why bad things happen to good people, because there is no answer for us human beings. But it does relate to different approaches within a religious sphere. It's also important that Job and his friends are not Jewish. They're not part of the people of Israel. This is a universal problem, according to the Bible. Just like last week, Mishlei, Proverbs, was largely about God-fearing people. 
So too, the book of Job is addressed to God-fearing people, meaning there are righteous Gentiles who also suffer, and there are wicked Gentiles who are incredibly prosperous and are doing great. The problem isn't specifically to Jews. We might feel it more sometimes because of our unusually you know, spotted history. We've suffered quite a bit. But the problem is not unique to us, that's for sure. Unfairness can happen anywhere. So this book is about specifically typological non-Israelite people. They live in Eretz Utzas, in the land of Edom. They're not cast as Israelites at all because it doesn't have to be Israelites. This is a universal problem. And so here we go. We're going to, in the rest of the shiur, simply survey what the book is about, some of the highlight passages, and try to tie together what the book is driving at. So again, the book begins, as I told you, we don't have all of this inside. It's at, most people, by the way, you should try this tonight when you leave. If you ask most people on the street, how long is the book of Job? Quick. Yeah, I think most people would say short. And you could test people on the street. I think most people think it's ballpark two chapters. It's 42 chapters long. It's a massive book. But I think most people on the street will also have the same gut instinct, which is Job suffered, he's praised God anyway. Ta-da! Well, no, that's that's not what happens at all. I mean, that's how it starts. But then there's a lot of other chapters in there where other things happen, and that's what makes it a good book. I think if it only had the first part, then it would be an unbelievable statement of piety, but too unbelievable. And a man who just lost his wealth and his children and his suffering, if all he has to say is bless God... I can't relate to that guy. I don't think anybody who has any heart beating inside could, right? And that's part of the issue. And the rest of the book deals with, well, when you're a human being, what is his reaction? And that's what most of the book is about. So here it goes. So Satan, as I already mentioned, is given permission by God to smite Eov. So poor guy suffers miserably. And source three kicks off. Then Job arose, tore his robe, cut off his hair, and threw himself on the ground and worshipped. He said... Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. For all that, Job did not sin, nor did he cast reproach on God. So if the book ended here, the point would be God won the bet. God said, Eov is really righteous. Satan said, no, he's only righteous because he's prosperous. Well, now he's lost everything, and he's still blessing God. Okay, God wins. He can collect his five bucks. But... The book isn't over yet. What do you think about his reaction, by the way? Is this a religious role model situation? What What is it? It's very pious, right? It's unbelievably pious. Huh? Where is the struggle? I mean, it's hard to believe that somebody, a human being, can really do this and be an absolute philosopher, right? He's not blaming it on somebody else. Not on anybody. Right? He's, he's not blaming it at all. He's just saying, look, it's a good attitude to have that everything from God is a gift. And so I have these gifts, and now I've lost these gifts. So that's God's prerogative. The world belongs to him. There's truth to that, yeah? No, basically, it harks back to what I said last week about the issue that life is neither fair nor unfair. Life is what it is. And in a sense, that's his acceptance to accept whatever it is. He's not blaming God. He's not blaming anything. He's not blaming anything. This is what happens. Right. It's what happens, and not only that, but it's thank God that God gave me all of these things for as long as he did. And that's it. It's pure gratitude. The sense is that everything belongs to God, and that's it. God is taken away. May the name of the Lord be blessed. Well, the Satan is not through yet. He doesn't want to give up his five bucks. Quick question. So, man, let me... Let me huh? Is Satan, is that a Hebrew word? Yeah. It is. That's the word that's used here. Yeah. No, I'm talking about because of the spelling is why I asked Oh, what, what is origin? I don't know. It's etymology. That's what I'm talking. Okay, but but at least but it's in it's a biblical word. Yeah, yeah. 
But I don't know its origin. But lisatan, it's a verb sometimes. It means to just be an impediment. So that's what it means over here as the noun. It's a player, it's an angelic figure like that. So in chapter 2 is where Satan strikes Eob personally. And now he's suddenly physically afflicted as well. And Mrs. Job shows up with a brief cameo saying, Eob, enough already. You're suffering so much, just curse God and die. And Eob's like, no way. No way. And that's what source number 4 is about. The adversary, which is how JPS is translating the Satan. I guess they want to avoid the words... S-A-T-A-N, because that looks like Satan. So you don't want to do that. So adversary obviates that. But those of us who know what the what the Hebrew word is understand what's going on. That, that's the word. Satan is just the English-sounding way of saying the word Satan. But it doesn't mean Satan in a demonic sense. It's an angel part of the heavenly host. The adversary departed from the presence of the Lord and inflicted a severe inflammation on Job from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. This, you know, the Satan really goes all out here. He took a potsherd to scratch himself as he sat in ashes. Poor guy. His wife said to him, so here's Mrs. Job, you still keep your integrity? Blaspheme God and die. Enough already. How could you put up with all of this garbage? Just curse God and die and escape all of these woes. But he said to her, you talk as any shameless woman might talk. Should we accept only good from God and not accept evil? Great theology lesson to his wife. Who, By the way, it's only a cameo. Presumably she's in a pretty bad mood after losing her ten children also. right? But we don't get to see that side of the coin because she's not a character. She's a foil. In this picture, she represents what a lot of people do when there's unfairness. They walk away from God, one way or another. They don't need to blaspheme and die. They could just say, enough. So she basically reflects that perspective, which we all know people like that, right? It's not an unusual or a far-out perspective. She represents in her cameo form, some people give up at this point. By the way, the first person who ever gave up on God when he felt the world was unfair was Cain, Cain. God rejected his sacrifice, and by the end of the story, he says, I'm going to hide from your presence. It's very, it's like, hey, you accepted my brother's offering, you didn't accept mine? What's up with that? So he murders his brother and walks away. So that's the very first time in history that somebody felt slighted by God and felt the world was unfair and just took a walk. He said, I'm not going to struggle. He doesn't curse God. He just wanders. He's, he's done. He's through, he's through with the relationship with God. So Mrs. Job takes the extreme position. And says, just curse God and walk away from all of your woes. For all that, Job said nothing sinful. So that's how chapters 1 and 2 flow. That at this point, it still sounds like Job is going to, that God is going to win the bet. Because Job is retaining his righteousness. He disagrees with his wife. He says, why am I going to walk away? <laughs> this is God's world. I'm going to stay right here. But the Talmud already picks up a very interesting phrase. It says, for all that, Job said nothing sinful. So the Talmud says, well, wait a minute, that's different from chapter 1. What we saw in source 3 is just that pious statement, right? For all that, Job did not sin, nor did he cast reproach on God. Here the expression is, Job said nothing sinful. The Talmud says, but he's thinking. But he's thinking. He didn't say anything yet, but he's getting all turbulent. In other words, chapter 1, he sounds like this absolute disembodied philosopher who seems completely oblivious to how miserable his lot really is. He just says, look, everything is a gift, done. In chapter 2, he yells at his wife for saying, walk away, but he's starting to feel, wait a minute, something's going down. He hasn't had a chance to face the unfairness yet. That's really what's going on. It takes people time to confront unfairness, even when it's obvious. In this case, it's very obvious, right? He's a perfectly righteous man. He lost his 10 children, lost all his property, and he has this horrible disease all over his body. It's unfair. 
But it's going to take him some time to be able to feel that and be, allow himself to express that. And that's what finally happens. The friends actually are what enable him to be able to speak. Chapter 5. What happens right before chapter 5 is that these three friends show up. Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Sofar. And I'll talk about them briefly in just a little while. But first, let's give Job the camera. And the way the whole book... By the way, here's we're going to do all 42 chapters tonight, you should know. Watch this. We did chapters 1 and 2 already. Check. Now, here comes 3 through 31. That's our next block. 3 through 31, one basic thing happens. You have these four people sitting in a circle, or whatever shape they happen to be organized in. Eov and his three buddies. And they play a ping-pong of dialogue. Job talks, Eliphaz talks. Job talks, Bildad talks. Job talks, Sofar talks. All right, round two. Job talks, Eliphaz talks. Job talks, Bildad, so on and so forth. And they just go in rounds until finally we're up to chapter 32. But those that's exactly what happens in this scene. So Job starts in source five. Afterward, Job began to speak and curse the day of his birth. Job spoke up and said, perish the day on which I was born and the night in which it was announced. A male has been conceived. In other words, when it was, people were announcing, Mazal Tov, it's a boy. So the curse on that day. I wish I were never born. May that day be darkness. May God above have no concern for it. May light not shine on it. Why did I not die at birth, expire as I came forth from the womb? Okay, so now he's not feeling all peaceful and serene and philosophical anymore. He hates his life, wants to die. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, but what is what is not what does he say and what does he not say here? He doesn't blame God. He certainly doesn't. He doesn't mention God. And he hates his life. He wants to die, but God is still not part of it. He's not allowing himself to realize that God is behind all of this. Nor did he Wait, say he criticize himself. Fine, also true, but he knows he's blameless. By chapter six, after Eliphaz gets his chance to say, "No offense, but you've obviously sinned," which is what the friends keep on saying. Uh, Job now in his next round in source six, if my anguish were weighed, my full calamity laid on the scales, it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. That is why I spoke recklessly. It's like, hey, you're telling me I'm speaking recklessly. I'll tell you something. I'm miserable for the arrows of the almighty are in me. My spirit absorbs their poison here for the first time. He acknowledges, well, if I'm suffering, God is the author, but he's still not speaking to God. Right? You understand there's a process here. First he's a pure philosopher. Then his emotions are turbulent, but he doesn't say anything. Then he hates his life, but still isn't talking about God. Then he talks about God to his friends. And now, finally, by chapter 7, which is also source 7 here. What is man that you make much of him, that you fix your attention upon him? Now he's talking to God. You inspect him every morning, examine him every minute. Will you not look away from me for a while? Let me be till I swallow my spittle. God, give me a break. Leave me alone for a minute. If I have sinned, what have I done to you, watcher of men? Why make of me your target and burden to myself? It's like, why why are you picking on me? Now he's willing to start confronting God with it. And he keeps going. Once he realizes, wait a minute, not only is this all from God, but I should talk to God about it. He's able to develop this argument in, in his following discuss his following discussions. Source eight. I am disgusted with life. I will give rein to my complaints. Speak in the bitterness of my soul. I say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know what you charge me with. And I'm challenging God to a trial. All right. You think I deserve this? Well, let's let's talk about it, God. Come on, tell me what I did wrong. Does it 
benefit you to defraud, to despise the toil of your hands while smiling on the counsel of the wicked? God, you're just so unfair. Not only are you making me suffer, but how about all those wicked people who are doing well? Let's just throw that in. Right? So by now, Job is directly talking to God, and his friends are really giving it to him through all of this. And he's frustrated, quite understandably, because he knows that God is never going to show up for this trial. And his friends keep saying, well, of course God is not going to show up. But we can tell you, you must have sinned. Because there's no other way to explain this. God is fair. You're suffering. Okay. You did something to deserve this. There's no other way to explain this. Job says, oh yeah? Source 9. Yet know that God has wronged me. He has thrown up siege works around me. I cry violence, but I'm not answered. I shout, but can get no justice. He has barred my way. I cannot pass. He has laid darkness upon my path. He kindles his anger against me. He regards me as one of his foes. So by now, he's just letting it all out. And he's given himself a chance. You really see a process here. That's what I appreciate about this book, that Job starts off in this pure philosophical mode, but now that he's a human being again, he has to, it's dangerous, it's scary. He's a religious man. And he has to stare God in the eye. But it takes him a long time to stare God in the eye. By now, he can do it. And his friends keep firing back. Let me just tell you briefly about these three friends. They all basically just say the same thing. They're incredibly boring characters, right? They basically just say, well, Job, no offense, but you deserve it. Or maybe your children did something wrong and that's why they deserve to die. Okay, but that's it. Those are the only reasons we can come up with. The difference literarily between the three friends is that Eliphaz claims to speak in the name of prophecy. He claims that God speaks to him. So the idea from writing a a fiction book to deal with this problem, the idea is that prophecy would say you deserve it. And then you have Bildad who says, look, I'm not a prophet, but I'm I'm a sage. I'm a wise man. I studied with other wise men. So he reflects the voice of wisdom in our tradition, which also says God is fair. Right? And then you have, so far, the third friend. He says, look, I'm not a prophet. I'm not a sage. I'm just a regular man of faith. So each one of them, from their own perspectives, come up with the same answer, which is whether you're a prophet or whether you're a sage or whether you're just a regular believing person, you know that God is fair. And since God is fair, well, you must have done something wrong. So that's basically what the whole ping-pong cycle is from chapters 3 through 31, but I want to give you two highlight passages from 3 through 31 that we have not seen yet, which are not just about Job's developing his, I don't want to call it hostility toward God, but definitely venting his emotions toward God. That's definitely happening. Two other highlights from this section. One is source number 10. I love this. One of my all-time favorite biblical verses. Glad I studied the book of Job. Just, just for this. I mean, it's really, it's really worth it. Besides that, the issue is huge. In one of his outbursts, Job says, Oh, that my words were written down. Would they be inscribed in a record? Man, I wish somebody could write a book about what I'm talking about here. This is one of the finest moments where you realize, oh yeah, there's an author. Right? Now, usually you jump into a biblical text, you're just in it. So yeah, you know somebody wrote it, but that's not what you're thinking about. You're thinking about the text. You're thinking about the words. You're thinking about the message. So here you have Job in one of his speeches saying, you know, I wish somebody would just write the book. Here's the author saying, hi guys, there's an author here who is justifying why he's doing this. 
Now, as you take this fictional, right, perfectly righteous, incredibly suffering man, okay, we need to write a book about this. That's the, he's justifying the very project that this book is all about. Another passage that may get lost in the shuffle when one is going through this is in source 11, or in one of his speeches still. Job again took up his theme and said, By God who has deprived me of justice, by Shaddai who has embittered my life, I swear to God, as long as there is life in me, and God's breath is in my nostrils, as long as I'm alive, my lips will speak no wrong, nor my tongue utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right. God, I will never admit that you're right. I'm suffering unfairly. Until I die, I will maintain my integrity. I persist in my righteousness and will not yield. I shall be free of reproach as long as I live. This is fantastic. Because actually, I'm sorry that the camera doesn't shift back over. This is actually where God wins the bet. God's whole point at the beginning of the book is that Job is righteous. And the Satan was saying, nah, he's only righteous because he benefits. When Job, in the depths of his despair, venting against God, says, God, I know that you're wronging me here, but I will always retain my righteousness. That's where God wins his bet. And by the way, that's one of the messages of the book. Yes, there's unfairness in the world. You have to retain your righteousness anyway. Sometimes it's easier said than done. That's the whole purpose of the book. In other words, Mrs. Job represents what some people do. They walk away. They say, this this is ridiculous. Why why should I put up with God if the world is going to be unfair? But the proper response, as far as the book is concerned, which is what our whole tradition says, is, no, what Job is doing here is the best. He acknowledges that it's unfair. He doesn't pretend that nothing is happening. In fact, a lot is happening. His life is basically in shambles. But he says, I swear to God, I know that you're wronging me. I know this is unfair, but I retain my righteousness. This is this is the winning moment in the book. I'm sorry that it doesn't get celebrated more. It's just tucked away in chapter 27. But we can celebrate it here together. That's why I put it in the source sheets. I wanted to make sure that it gets there. So that's all of chapters 1 through 31. Good, so now we're up to chapters 32 through 37. We're, we're making some progress. The... At this moment, something weird happens from within the book. It's not really weird. It's just weird because it hasn't happened yet in the book. We're so used to the cycle. All of a sudden, some other guy shows up. His name is Elihu. He's <coughs> not one of the original three friends. He wasn't sitting there this whole time silently. He just shows up. And Elihu has a different message from all of it, from everybody. It may not appear this when you're reading chapters 3 through 31 when Job is blasting his friend's head off and saying, stop it, you're driving me crazy, get out of here. Lousy friends who I got. Right? He's, he's, he's furious at them, but they actually all agree with each other. It may not seem like that at the time, but they really all agree. They all agree, God supervises world, God is always fair. The friends say, since God is always fair, that's why Job deserves, must deserve his suffering. Job is saying, I know that God is fair. That's why I'm so angry at him, because right now he's not being fair. They actually agree with what they expect to happen. Job is just saying, but I didn't do anything this time. I, I agree that God is fair all the time. But today he's not being fair, and that's why I'm so upset. That's the premise of the book. Elihu shows up, and he has a whole different way of thinking about the world. As far as I can tell, his way of thinking about the world is very close to the author's way of thinking about the world. The first thing he says in these, I mean, he gets a lot of airtime. He gets six unanswered chapters. And by the way, at the end of it, Job doesn't respond to him at all. 
He just says his piece, and that's that's the end of him. He has the six chapters in the sun. So Elihu, first of all, says God is beyond our comprehension. Everybody in the story up until now seems to really understand exactly how God works. And the friends, since they understand, therefore they are very smug. And since Job understands, that's why he's so angry, because here I don't understand. Usually it works the way I thought. Elihu says, we just, God is beyond our comprehension. The next thing he throws in as a major message is that God doesn't owe anybody anything. Which you might think that if you're righteous, God owes you something for your righteousness. But Elihu's point is God is not in anybody's debt. So Elihu agrees with Job that it's possible for somebody to suffer without having sinned. But the difference between Job and Elihu is that Job thinks that's wrong. And that's why I'm so angry about it. Elihu is saying that's just the way that it is. The world is unfair sometimes. That's what Elihu is trying to say. Elihu's basic point is that we have no answers. We're people. We don't understand how God works. But we can say that God is, is in, he's the one that we need to be in awe of him. Much of the time the world makes sense. We need to obey God regardless, and we have no answers to the causal link between righteous behavior and and reward. Is that the same as saying there's no reward? It's not the same thing. It's saying we don't know how it works. We believe that God offers reward and punishment because God says it all the time in the Torah. But one could, therefore, interpret all events and say, I know exactly how God works. It brings back very unfond memories. When I was just starting out in the rabbinate, I went to some youth director conference thing because I like kids and I figured it might be worth hearing the pros here are the best synagogue youth leader people hopefully in in somewhere wherever they were coming from I'm sure I have a lot to learn from them so I went out there and some of the sessions were awesome so it was was worth going but there was one session on storytelling so I figured it it can't hurt to learn how to tell a story from a master storyteller I'm sure that's what they're going to give us right Okay, be prepared to be disappointed, folks. What happened instead was the person got in there and said, I didn't prepare anything at all. Would somebody in the room like to tell a story? Okay, so that was a bad start. But it only got worse because then somebody volunteered and told a story. And the story, the point was to talk about storytelling technique. Okay, that was, that was the purpose of it. But, well, the story basically was that somebody who used to not keep Shabbat was about to go to the... Munich Olympics, he was an Israeli athlete, started keeping Shabbat, went to his rabbi, what should I do? He said he should stay home and not participate in the Olympics. He stayed and all the other athletes, of course, were murdered. That was the story. So up goes my hand. I'm like, look, I know this is about storytelling and technique and you told that story really effectively, but can we just talk about the theology behind what you're telling your children for just a moment? Like what you're saying is basically the athletes who were murdered deserve to die Right, And that since they weren't keeping Shabbat, nah, well, what do you want? Down they go. But this guy who was righteous and kept Shabbat, he was spared. And then, how about times that you have synagogue shootings, and the people who went to synagogue that morning are getting killed, and the people who went to the beach are fine. We all know that they're... I'm like, what are you telling the kids? This is a horrible, horrible lesson. And then, of course, it just became... That was the end of the storytelling session. Everybody chimed in with... I, I was just... I was so appalled at the story. I couldn't, I couldn't hold back. And usually I hold back very nicely, even then. But not, not a story like that. I think it's so outrageous. So... Oh, so the guy's response to me was, God works in mysterious ways. So I had no choice here. I'm like, 
yes, I thought God did work in mysterious ways, but you seem to know how God works, right? And so the point of Elihu is God works in mysterious ways. That's why I'm telling you this story. That's what triggered this story from like 20 years ago or whatever it was. Elihu's whole point is God works in mysterious ways. We really don't know how God works. Whereas the friends are sure that they know. And that's what makes Elihu stand out from the crowd. But Eov doesn't respond, perhaps because he realizes maybe Elihu has a point. The friends are busy shoving in Job's face, you must have sinned, but Job knows that he didn't. And what's more important this is what makes it a good book. We know that he didn't. It's no, it's no book if we think that the friends might be right. It only works because God said he's perfect. Okay, so then something very unexpected happens. We're up to chapters 38 through 42, which if we remember the number of chapters in the book, well, 42. So good, we're, we're actually, we're, get, we're getting there. You can do this in an hour, you just have to pace it right. <laughs> Chapters 38 through 41, something truly amazing happens, which is God shows up, comes in the whirlwind, which is why Rav Soloveitchik has that book, it's called Out of the Whirlwind. It's from this, from this expression, that God shows up in a very stormy situation, which nobody expected to happen. And God has something to say also. Well, that's good. Nobody was expecting God to show up in this story. Job is frustrated because he knows God won't. Boy, oh boy, he's in for a real treat or not, depending on how God responds. So source 12. Then the Lord replied to Job out of the tempest. I like the world whirlwind better, but okay. Uh, who is this darkens counsel, speaking without knowledge? Uh, who is it who's trying to challenge me to a duel or to a trial? Are you kidding me? Gird your loins like a man. Okay, tough guy. You want to fight with me? I'm here. Who's he talking to? To Job. To Job. Okay. your loins like a man. All right, tough guy. Really? He's saying, okay, you're speaking so toughly a minute ago. All right, tell me what's wrong. I will ask you and you will inform me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Speak if you have understanding. Do you know who fixed its dimensions or who measured it with a line? All right, Job, you're challenging me to a duel. You're challenging me to a trial. All right. So let's go. You've been talking tough with me for the last number of chapters. Say it to my face. And do you really think you know what you're talking about? I created the cosmos. What have you done lately? (laughs) And God just shoves it in his face for four chapters. Now, what I'm picturing in this scene, if I had to write the play, you know, describing this kind of thing, what obviously Job and his three friends, they have their faces in the dirt out of awe because God is now in their living room, right? This is an incredibly unexpected situation. They're terrified. They're in awe. But I also imagine that while their faces are in the dirt, Eliphaz quickly looks over to Bildad and puts up his hand, and Bildad gives him five. Because they realize, okay, God is on their side. God is blasting Job for his insolence. How dare you speak to me this way? Who do you think you are? You don't know what you're talking about. I created the cosmos, you didn't. And you can just hear those three friends going, yeah, they can't say anything, because that's you just don't do that when God is doing this. But... They must feel very good about themselves right now. Because this is the way, that, that's, it, it's, it's really fantastic. And after four chapters of a tirade of God at Job, for how dare you take me to trial, it's just important to note one feature. God never explains why the suffering is happening. Not a minor detail. He blasts Job, not for being wrong, because he's not wrong. We know all along he's right. He is a righteous man who is suffering unfairly. He's not blasting him, how dare you accuse me of being unfair? I'll tell you why you deserve it. That would have, that would have really ruined this, that would have ruined this book. But the author's not going there, because he's writing a gem. He's not writing a ruined book. The whole point that God is trying to say is that when you talk to God, you have to remember that God is God and you're not. Right? Job is talking to God like an equal. 
So he yells at him for the tone, but never for the content. The content is correct, yeah. It says actually in source eleven it says, Far be it from me to say that you are right. He says that he but he doesn't say that that's the way it should be. I, would, I, I just don't understand how that Far be it from me, for me to say that you are right is a very poetic way for saying, God, you're in the wrong. So, you know, it's despite the, what he's saying in this whole paragraph is despite the fact that you got it wrong and I'm right and you're punishing me unfairly and this is terrible, I will still retain my righteousness to you. In other words, he's never going to back down. He knows that he's right. And the fact is, we know that he's right. And now God doesn't correct that. God says, yeah, you're right. Uh, I know, I know, I know chapters one and two very well. I know about the wager. Right? That's the whole point of the book. God never contradicts Job on the content of his protests. The protests are valid. He's contradicting the tone of the protest. How, how dare you speak to me this way? So at this point, it looks like the friends are going to win. And now we're up to the very last chapter of the book. Source 13. Job said in reply to the Lord, the only thing I can imagine anybody in his right mind would say, even a fictional character, right? I know that you can do everything, and nothing you propose is impossible for you. Who is this that obscures counsel without knowledge? Boy, am I an idiot, Job says. Indeed, I spoke without understanding of things beyond me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak, I will ask, and you will inform me. I've heard you with my ears, but now I see you with my eyes. Therefore, I recant and relent, being but dust and ashes. Job backs down in a heartbeat. God lets him have it for four chapters for this terrible tone. And Job's like, I'm out of my league here. I'm done. I repent. I'm so sorry I ever spoke to you this way. That's it. And the friends are like, yeah, this is awesome. The one person who really criticizes Job for this response is Elie Wiesel. Allah shalom. I forget which book it was. But he is furious at Job for backing down. He says, Job, don't back down. Which, of course, that's Elie Wiesel's writing, right? It's about, don't back down from God. Keep the struggle going. Right? So he was very disappointed in Job's backing off here. Although, frankly, there's a big difference in having a protest when God is not in your living room. Right? I mean, I, I give Job a little bit, you know, I think Elie Wiesel's, you know, nobody can say that more powerfully than Elie Wiesel. So I don't remember what book it is otherwise. I would give you the source. But I remember reading him saying, this is so disappointing. You're like, come on, hang in there, Job, you're still right. But the book of Job doesn't take his slant. I understand why Elie Wiesel is coming from where he's coming from. I'm interested in how the book is slanting it, which is, at this exact moment, it sounds like the friends should shake hands and say, Job, you debated us well, but, well, we have God on our side. Sorry, you obviously deserve it. But see, one of the tricks that I do when I make these source sheets, that you have, I can't, I'm never going to tell you how long it takes just to make the source sheets. Forget about the, the material behind. Well, I put the next verse in the next source. Because if you put it in the same source, that would ruin the drama. Like, in other words, you have to hear Job's recanting and repenting. And now you can go to the very next verse, which happens to be source 14. After the Lord has spoken these words to Job, God is going to turn this whole book around. The Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am incensed at you and your two friends, for you have not spoken the truth about me as did my servant Job. I love it. So, man, talk about botching a source sheet if I would have put verse 7 up with 1 through 6. Forget it. I never would do such a terrible thing. But this is amazing. Up until this very second, I'm sure, and so are the friends, and so is Job. That Job overstepped his boundaries, and the friends were right all along. But now God looks Eliphaz in the eye and says, you guys are so wrong. You don't understand a thing about me. Job is my servant. That is the nicest compliment you can get in the whole Bible. 
And especially if it's coming from God. Now, my servant Job. This is where you realize what the book is really all about. All of this time, we knew that Job was right. The one flaw that Job had was his tone. But in content, the friends are out of line to dare say why God does what he does. And that's what God is telling them now. He says to them, you think I know how I work? And halakha, talk about how the book of Job and halakhic man can coincide. Watch this. Love it. Our sages in the Talmud, and we're not, real, we're not reading a halakhic book, we're reading a very important, what we would call a philosophical treatise in narrative form, the way the Bible does this sort of thing. But the Talmud codifies this into halakha. There's a category called ona'a, where you oppress somebody. One type of ona'a is ona'at mamon. If you rip somebody off, that's called ona'at mamon. And if you verbally abuse somebody, that's called ona'at devarim. Those are just two halakhic categories. They're both called ona'a, oppression. But okay, sometimes it's financial, sometimes it's verbal. So the Talmud always likes to give examples. What's an example of verbal oppression? So that's source number 15. Then to what can I refer? You shall not therefore wrong each other, which more oppress. This is the ona'a thing. To verbal wrongs, for example, if he is visited by suffering, afflicted with disease, or has buried his children, one must not speak to him as his companion spoke to Job. Is it not your fear of God, your confidence, and your hope of the integrity of your ways? Remember, I pray you, whoever perished being innocent. In other words, what the Talmud is saying is, you know those friends? They're violating a biblical prohibition by telling Job that he did something wrong while he's down. This is a halachic man move. They're saying that this is the banner example in the whole Bible of somebody who's verbally oppressing somebody. They're not doing it to oppress him. They're not teasing him. They're not doing it to be abusive. They're doing it because they love God. And honestly, they probably love Job. However, the Talmud says, don't ever, ever, ever do this. This is a biblical, this is a Torah prohibition if you do this. If somebody has a disease or is suffering in any way and you say, oh, you probably deserve it because God's ways are just, that's it. You just broke the Torah. So here's a halachic man way of dealing with what we've seen in narrative form. It's really a fantastically powerful halacha. So what the Talmud realizes is what we've already seen in the narrative, which is Job is the religious role model of the book. Which is amazing, because up until verse 7, I thought that the friends must be right, because they're justifying God, they're standing on God's side, but that's really not what the book is about at all. And so, to wrap all of these different, tie all these loose ends together, and then we'll read the final source, the main part of the book is actually how Job goes on a journey. It takes him time to address his suffering, starting from philosopher to turbulent emotions to hating his life to realizing it's from God to talking to God to yelling at God to challenging God to a trial to really being angry. And then with it, this unbelievably mature level of faith, which is basically what I think of as adult level faith in the Torah, which is loving God and keeping the Torah despite the fact that the world is unfair. And knowing full well that the world is unfair. Last week, the book of Proverbs is all about how the world isn't really unfair. There are temporary blips. The book of Job is saying the world is definitely unfair. You just need one example, but obviously there's a lot more than one. The world is definitely unfair. And Job's heroic moment is in chapter 27 when he proclaims his righteousness. He says, I'm going to be righteous even though, despite the fact that you're unfair. That's the moment where 
Job wins the day and demonstrates that he is absolutely righteous. And that's the model for the book. His flaw is the tone. You know, he was yelling at God like an equal, but the content was absolutely correct. The Talmud actually debates in, in a different passage in source number 16, the whole issue of unfairness at the very beginning of the Talmud, really, you know, Brachot 7a, it begins on 2a. So five pages into the whole Talmud. Rabbi Yochanan further said in the name of Rabbi Yosei, three things did Moses ask of the Holy One, blessed be he, and they were granted to him. One of those three things was, he asked that he should show him the ways of the Holy One, blessed be he, and it was granted to him. For it is said, show me now your ways. Moses said before him, Lord of the universe, why is it that some righteous men prosper and others are in adversity? Some wicked men prosper and others are in adversity. In other words, why is the world unfair? And Rabbi Yochanan's point is that God answered him. If you read what the Talmud has for the answer, you may not be so convinced. But there's an answer given over there, which I dot, dot, dotted out. It's a whole different topic, which, which takes us far beyond where we need to be. But the, the, the point is that according to one opinion in the Talmud, Moshe knew the answer to the question of why the world is unfair. Now this saying of Rabbi Yochanan is in opposition to the saying of Rabbi Meir. For Rabbi Meir said only two requests were granted to him and one was not granted to him. God never answered why the world is unfair. One little not irrelevant point is who this Rabbi Meir is. Rabbi Meir was a student of the two greatest sages of the generation. One was Rabbi Akiva. And the other was Rabbi Akiva's colleague who went bad, Elisha ben Avuya, the great heretic of the Talmud. Elisha ben Avuya was a great sage, and he made the sages very nervous because he was a top-flight sage who lost his faith. And the Talmud has different ways of dealing with how he lost his faith, but the classic story is he saw a father commanding his son to go fetch eggs from the nest, just where we started at the Shior. And the son honored his father, ran up the tree, shooed away the mommy bird, fell down, died dead. Elisha ben Avuyah says, that's it. God isn't batting a thousand. I'm out of here. There's obviously no fairness in this world. So Rabbi Meir, his student, is saying it's beyond human comprehension. Even Moshe didn't know the answer, but that's not reason to walk away. Rabbi Meir, of course, remained a sage. He didn't become a heretic. So that's Rabbi Meir's answer to Elisha ben Abuya. Elisha ben Abuya, my master, was correct. When you see something like that, it is appalling to think that you could answer the question, that you have some explanation for why God does things. It's appalling. Rabbi Meir says this is beyond any human comprehension, even Moshe's. But remain a sage. In other words, I'm, I'm here, I'm, I'm the leading Talmudist of my generation. Because I still have faith in God, even though I know that I will never understand why these things happen. So I think it's significant who is making the statement over here. Obviously, it's a philosophical discussion. Nobody knows what God did or didn't answer to Moshe. What matters is how the book runs. The book of Eov is certainly in, in in accordance with Rabbi Meir's view. The whole point is that unfairness is here, and it's beyond human wisdom, and it's our responsibility to struggle with God, and simultaneously to retain our righteousness. That's a difficult balance to do. We Jewish people have been doing it for thousands of years, but it's still not easy. right? We've had a lot of suffering, a lot of unfair suffering, but bless the people who have held on generation through generation, the Jobs of each generation who have kept it going so that we're able to study the book of Job here tonight. On that happy note, I thank you as always. And I look forward next week, by the way, just to, to remind